please have a seat. Man, you guys are lively for an 11 o'clock crowd. I'll tell you that right now. I love it. Hey, if you're joining us and you are from Northridge, Cactus, Chapel, and online, welcome. We have a lot of work to do in the Word today. Uh, it's going to be kind of a, a heady but also touching the heart uh, focus that we're going to take uh, that I think might catch some of you in a good way off guard, in, in a really good way as we enter a new series today. You'll see what that's about in just a second. I'll be praying this week for next weekend. It's kind of our fall kickoff, as you can have a fall kickoff in the middle of a pandemic. And we're we're going to be uh, starting our youth ministry. Our children's ministry will be open next week, as well as we're creating a bit more space on our campuses and uh, just continue to pray for God's protection and his provision and for his movement uh, in our midst as we focus on him. So enough said, enough preamble. Let's bow right now and pray, and then we're going to dive right in. God, thank you for the gathered church here and at other, other campuses as well as online. We, Lord, call ourselves one church, one body of Christ, even though we might be in different places. And God, we're grateful for the opportunity to meet here now. I pray that as we open your book, God, that you might speak to us. God, we're all in different places today, not just physically, but also, Lord, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. And yet, Lord, we know that you made us all, you love us all. So meet us in your word now. May the words that we're going to talk about right now make sense to our minds and even penetrate our lives and hearts. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and I hope we all can say together, amen. So let me begin, as I often do, with a question, kind of an intense question, and it's this. Have you ever wondered why some high-profile, seemingly mature and stable Christian leaders fall or even fall away. I got to believe all of you have wondered that. They're in the news and you see it, these high profile Christian names of men and even women that we, we trust and respect, at least from a distance. And then we learn that they fall or even worse in some ways, fall away. How can that happen? A couple of years ago, a nationally prominent megachurch pastor who had written some powerful books on dating back in the 1990s uh, announced he was leaving his church. And then a year later, he left his wife. And then even later, announced that he was no longer a Christian. As you can imagine, this sent shockwaves through his denomination as well as through all those who were watching. Just this year, a few months ago, a well-known contemporary Christian artist did the same. After leading hundreds of thousands in worship and praise for a decade and a half, he up and announced that he no longer believes in God, let alone Jesus, and walked away from his ministry and his faith, again, sending shockwaves through the Christian as well as secular world. And then we have the scores of leaders and pastors who might not fall away but you and I know the stories. They sure fall. Engaging in a level of, of shocking and disqualifying sin, disqualifying themselves from leadership by their aberrant behavior, at least for now. And it was a kind of sin that they never sought out, obviously. We never saw coming or thought imaginable, but it did. And now things are changed. Now, without passing any judgment on these individuals here, because it's between them and God, and I don't know most of them, and I certainly don't know their journeys and stories, but because they are high-profile Christian leaders and pastors who have put themselves out there, it is okay to ask, how and why does this happen? 
I mean, what's going on? How can you have someone that is so seemingly mature and stable experience such a catastrophic fall that causes them maybe even to leave their faith? And even more so, what can you and I learn from this that might safeguard our own spiritual lives and even allow us to help others who might be vulnerable? And though the answer to why and how seemingly solid and mature Christian leaders fall and even fall away is very complex and varied. I mean, those in the know will point to everything from the stress of ministry to letting one's guard down to undealt with family of origin issues to intellectual doubts to spiritual battle. It truly is complex. It hit me this last spring. During COVID-19, as I was sitting alone in my office most days, giving a lot of thought and prayer to what we do, it hit me that if there is one primary thing that all these people and stories have in common, if there's one overriding factor that you and I could point to and maybe explore and learn from, it would be this. And that is that anyone who falls or falls away from God would tell you that there was an obvious lack of experiencing God that preceded the fall. I know it seems simple, but it's true. Think about it. Nobody walks away from belief in God when they are experiencing him seeing answers to prayer, sensing his abiding presence, feeling him in nature, finding cogency in biblical truth, or finding internal power in the Holy Spirit. Nobody falls away from God when they're experiencing him like this. And I'm here to tell you, usually nobody falls into ministry-shattering sin when they are experiencing these things as well. In fact, it's the opposite. Whenever I have talked to somebody who has fallen or even fallen away, and I've talked to a few over the years, though there are plenty of mitigating factors, it is complex, the one thing that they all cite to me is that their experience of God had dried up way before the event. In other words, to coin the old phrase, they were faking it till they were hopefully making it. But the problem is they never made it. And so all that faking it didn't help at all. And so folks, what this has done for me over the years is that it's caused me to regularly monitor my spiritual life and to ask that hard question that I know you ask in your heart of hearts. And that is, are you experiencing God or are you too just going through the motions and faking it until somehow you make it? I ask myself regularly, am I walking close with him and even more so through walking close, am I having some sort of regular spiritual and relational connection with God that is palpable and real and that can sustain me week in and week out? And I know the second I mentioned experiencing God, some of you, especially you older type Christians are going, oh, Jamie, this scares me. Where are you going with this? And what you need to chill out about is that for 2,000 years, Christians have experienced God in many varied ways. In fact, entire denominations have been built around them. As I've looked at this over the years, I've noticed that liturgical high church believers 
like Episcopalians, experience God different than the Pentecostals and the Charismatics do. You ever notice that? If you haven't, go to a Pentecostal church and then next week go to an Episcopal church and you'll be glad you come here. And, and then come here. No, I'm teasing. I have great friends who, who are in both those traditions, but they're very, very different. Let's pick on us for a minute. Bible church people, you and I, tend to experience God different than the generation coming up behind us that are more missional and activist in their faith. In other words, it's okay that we experience the Lord in different ways. My concern today is simply, is there a regular connection and experience of the triune God for you? And I mean Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that gets you through the onslaught of attacks that come our way in life from the flesh, the world, and even the powers of darkness. Because I believe there is. The Bible sure affirms that there is. And that's what I want us to think about and explore over the next three weeks here at our church. How does one avoid being a spiritual casualty? Here's what I know. I have yet to meet someone who regularly connects with God and experiences him in whatever way is biblical and real for you, who then goes on to denounce or even fall away from him. And that's what I wanna talk about. So, as we follow our stated goals of our church in this series, the goals being to get God, get real, and get out there, what we're gonna do this month at our church is through the lens of get God, get real, and get out there, analyze our experience of him and see how getting God, getting real, and getting out there can cause us to experience him, or at least have an experience that is more real to our souls and just might keep many of us from falling in the future. And today we begin with this idea of getting God, and I've chosen to focus today under get God on this idea of doctrine. Now, as soon as I mention doctrine, for those of you who've been around the church block more than once or have any familiarity with Christianity, you're immediately thinking, let's just be honest, boring. Like doctrine doesn't sound very exciting, Jamie. It doesn't sound very life-giving to my soul. I'm here to tell you today that I think the average Christian not only doesn't not understand what we mean by doctrine, but has undersold the idea, because I'm gonna to try to convince you today that not only is doctrine extremely life-giving to our souls, but it has capacity to turn your spiritual life from black and white to technicolor. It could be the missing piece that some, if not many of you have when it comes to your experience of God. Now, to show you this, I wanna share with you today one simple but profound passage in the Bible. We're gonna park in front of it in our time today. It's a profound passage found in the New Testament book of Titus, chapter two, verse one. And it's not a very long passage. It says this. It says, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Folks, this is a fascinating and rich passage if there ever was one. Paul the Apostle is writing to Titus, that's why the book is called Titus, who was one of his fellow church leaders who's involved in church planting on the island of Crete in, in, in the Mediterranean Sea. And he wants to give some expert advice on how Titus can help his fellow Christians the most and how they can experience God. And what does he say to Titus? He says, speak the things, Titus, which are fitting for sound doctrine, and you and your people will experience God. 
That word speak here in the original language that the Bible was written in is a fascinating word. I looked it up. It literally means, you ready for this? To speak. Imagine that. It means to vocalize something, to project something with your voice. And what are you doing? You're projecting an idea that just might matter to the person that is hearing it. Or even as you think it, an idea that just might matter to you. But it's not just any idea, obviously. It's to speak something that is fitting. That word literally means to fit into like a hand and a glove that collates with, and here's the key, sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. That word sound doctrine is the mixture of two different Greek words. The first Greek word is hygiano, where interestingly we get our English word hygiene from. It means clean, it means pure, it means well-balanced. It means something that you would be into. And it's saying that kind of clean, sound doctrine, that's the key word. This is the Greek word didaskalia. And it means to learn something. Now watch this. It means to learn something with your mind that eventually plays itself out in your actions. That's what the word didaskalia means, sound doctrine, content-oriented things that you put into your thinking that are so powerful, so good, that you believe so deeply that they eventually work themselves out Monday through Saturday in your behavior. A few years ago when I was doing a deep dive into Titus 2 verse 1, because it really is a powerful passage, I, I looked up every occurrence of this Greek word didaskalia that's translated either doctrine or teaching in the New Testament. There's only about 20 of them, but I looked up all 20 and, and researched what exactly each of those verses mean. So I'm going to save you the trouble right now and just give you the Cliff Notes version. This is really good stuff. I found that in looking at all the occurrences of this word doctrine or teaching, didaskalia in the Bible, in the New Testament, it falls into one of three buckets. It tells us to avoid human-based faulty teaching and then to embrace God-based correct teaching and then to protect from mixing the two. So one of the first ways this word is used in the New Testament is to avoid all the human-based faulty stuff. It was actually Jesus that said this. In Matthew 15, verse 19, Jesus accuses, you gotta love this, the religious leaders of his day, the pastors of his day, as, and I quote, teaching as doctrine, didaskalia, the commandments of men. He says, you guys have taken my wonderful word from the Old Testament and you've added all your own rules and stuff to it and then you teach this to the people as somehow as the commandments of God when they're actually the commandments of men. He's basically saying you got this human-based faulty teaching coming from the religious leaders of the day that don't collate with my word and he's saying avoid this stuff. Paul the Apostle would say the same thing in Colossians 2.22 when he tells the church to avoid human precepts and teachings, didaskalia. So there's a difference between what a well-meaning Christian friend of yours says about God and at times what the Bible is actually saying. We'll see that in a minute. Which is why in Acts 17 it says the, Bere the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians because even when Paul the Apostle taught them, they checked the Bible every day to see if what even Paul was saying was true. <laughs> and that's the second thing it brings us to, and that is to embrace God-based correct teaching. Some of you are saying, where do we find that? It ain't complicated. In his book, 
The Bible is really clear as it self-attests to this. 1 Timothy 4.13, again using the same word didascalia, tells us, now watch this, to devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, which means encouragement, and to teaching didascalia doctrine. Isn't it interesting? It links here the public reading of Scripture with teaching about what that Scripture is saying, doctrine. And then 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says the same thing when it says that the Bible is profitable for teaching doctrine, didascalia, and then for reproof, correction, and training in our righteousness. It's really clear. We need to embrace God's doctrine as found in his word, his truth for our lives. So you gotta avoid the human-based stuff, embrace the God-based stuff. And then, real quickly, there's a third way this word is used, and that is to protect the God-based stuff from getting mixed in with the human-based stuff. 1 Timothy 1.10 tells us to resist anything that's contrary to sound doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.6 praises good doctrine when we follow it. And then our verse here says, hey, only speak those things which are fitting for sound doctrine. So we're to protect our doctrine. If you don't hear anything else today, hear this. Doctrine matters. The Bible underlines this word and says it's rather important in your experience of God. And the question that I want to spend the rest of our time on today, we've got about 20 to 25 minutes, I'm watching the clock, is simply this. Why does doctrine matter so much? Why does the Bible underline this word and say, man, you better dial in to this? Why is God so concerned that we embrace and avoid and even protect? And here it is. It's your main and only point this morning, and it makes all the difference. And that is that biblical doctrine is designed to help you and me know about God, and it should lead to knowing God. Look at this very carefully. I thought about this. Biblical doctrine helps us know about God. You read about him in the Bible and you learn about him. And here's where a lot of Christians fall short. And it should lead to actually knowing God. And yet you and I know way too many Christians that can quote Bible verses and they know all about God. And yet they don't seem very kind and loving and they don't seem like they really know God. And that's where the disconnect comes in. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But it's not doctrine's fault. (laughs) Don't shoot the messenger. Biblical doctrine is designed to help us know about God so that we might know God. You know, if you were to look up the word doctrine in Webster's Dictionary, let's start real simple right now, you'd get this definition of doctrine. It would tell you that doctrine is an authoritative statement or set of statements of a system of belief. So our world actually uses this word doctrine. Some people would say, I have a a, a set of political doctrines. If you came up to me and said, I got a set of political doctrines, I would know what you mean by that. You have a set of beliefs that you believe and abide by that have formulated or made up your political beliefs, whether Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever you are. If you come up to me and say, I have a set of economic doctrines, I would know what you mean by that. You have a set of beliefs about how economies should work, whether socialist or Marxist or or, or capitalist, and, and that you live by these beliefs and they have formulated how you think and act about economies. We get that. So when I say to you, and when the Bible says you and I need to have sound biblical doctrine, what we're simply saying, now don't miss this, is that what you and I believe about God 
and where we get those beliefs matter greatly and will determine our experience of God or not. So doctrine is simply the things that we believe from the Bible about every aspect of life and they're the things that formulate how we act and think and therefore formulate our experience when it comes to God. So maybe this will help. Uh, Carl Henry was one of my professors way back in seminary 30 plus years ago. You don't know the name Carl Henry because he never really existed much in churches, didn't write a lot of popular books, but he was Time Magazine's theologian of the year back in the 1970s. He, he was a powerhouse in the theological world. He was a founding editor of Christianity Today magazine, a founding professor at Fuller Seminary, wrote tons of books, including a six-volume set of books called God, Revelation, and Authority. Each one of them are like 800 pages, small print, no pictures. I barely read them myself, but I own a copy. And I did start reading volume one years ago when he was my professor, and there was one particular thing he said that I got right away that I've carried with me over the years because it made so much sense, and it's this. Look at what Carl Henry says. He says, Christianity, for all its emphasis on personal trust in the living God, here it is, does not expound believing in God in isolation from believing about God. Let me repeat that. He says that Christianity never expounds believing in God in isolation from believing about God. What is he saying here? He's suggesting that in order to believe in God, you gotta know some things about God. And doctrine, these truths based on what the Bible says are what tell us about God so that you and I can rightly believe in God. And let's take this even further for our purposes this morning. Once you know about God and then choose to believe in God, you now have a chance to know God. In other words, what you believe about causes you to say, this is what I believe in, and what you believe in should lead to your experience, or in this case, in knowing God. And what I would submit to you is that the reason the average Christian is anemic in his or her spiritual life is because they really haven't cemented what they believe about God so that they can firmly know what they believe in when it comes to God. And it shows in their absolute lack of experience when it comes to knowing God. Doctrine is that important, gang. It's the foundation intellectually of everything that we, all of our experience in God, and it will determine our experience of him. That's why we say biblical doctrine helps us know about God, and it should lead to knowing God. And you're saying, well, why doesn't it lead that way to everybody? Well, it's because I'm not sure that we really believe what the Bible says when it says it. And even if we do say we believe it, I don't mean to be too hard on you, but if I followed some of you around for a week, your actions would say otherwise. I think all of us are mature enough to know that you can say one thing, but deep down, your actions tell you whether you really believe it or not, right? I mean, marriage works that way. I don't mean to get any marriages in trouble here, but Kim and I have been there where I've said to her, you know, I really love you. And she would basically say, well, the way you treated me this week, I wouldn't know it. And if I was to say, well, no, but honey, I feel it, you see, and I just said I love you, doesn't that matter? Not very much if my actions aren't really doing anything about it. 
or if my actions show the opposite. Could it be that it's the same with God and that we say we believe certain things, we might even think we believe those things, but when it comes to leaning our weight in on those things, we're faking it till we make it. We really aren't resting in what God says. I wanna wrap up in the 15 or so minutes I have left by giving you one example. There are so many I could give you. I mean, the point of today is, is if you don't believe what the Bible says, then you're gonna be a spiritual casualty. That's the point. But the good news is, if you do believe what the Bible says, then there's a really good chance you're gonna experience God in the way your soul longs to. Let me give you one example of this, and it's an example that many of you are familiar with that most Christians talk about, but quite frankly struggle with. It's the example of prayer. And I'm gonna show you right now how the Bible says some things about prayer that we could formulate into a set of doctrines about prayer, sound doctrine that we believe about prayer, and that if you really believe these things, they just might allow you, in fact, they will allow you to experience God. Here we go. Four things the Bible says about prayer. Here's the first thing that it says, and that is that God wants us to pray and he wants us to pray a lot. Let's just start real simple. Have you guys read the Bible? Bible says it over and over again. Talk to God, talk to God, talk to God. He's interested in you, he wants to listen to what you have to say and talk to him a lot. It's Ephesians 6 verse 18 that says, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer, keep praying for the saints. Or Philippians 4 verses 6 and 7 that says, don't be anxious for anything but in everything with prayer and petition, present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I could go on and on. There are literally hundreds of passages in the Bible that tell us to pray to God and pray a lot. That's prayer 101. Then the Bible says another thing about prayer. We're formulating our doctrine of prayer here. It says that God always answers prayer. It's just that he answers them with either yes, no, or wait. Did you know that? I love it when people say to me, I've been praying and God's not answering. Well, my guess is he has. You just didn't like the answer. You see, I've been doing this for 35 years now, and when I pray, God does answer. It's biblical. Obviously, there's lots of examples in the Bible of how God answers, yes. In the Old Testament, it didn't rain for months or even years on end. They prayed and it rained. There's an answer to prayer. That's a yes. In the New Testament, there's lots of examples of healings and miracles, and they prayed to God to do this, and he would answer yes. So there's tons of answers or, or, or examples of yes answers to prayer in the Bible. Did you know there's examples of no answers to prayer in the Bible? Meaning God saying no. David, one of the most famous godly kings that ever existed, had a real big fall in his life with Bathsheba and he got her pregnant and God said, that kid ain't gonna make it. And so David hit his knees and he started praying like crazy that God would spare the child in Bathsheba's womb. And he even fasted and lamented in sackcloth and ashes. And what did God end up saying to that prayer? No. I said that baby wasn't gonna make it, he wasn't. God didn't answer David, or God answered David's prayer, he just answered it with a no. And then there's times where God answers our prayers and says, wait. Greatest example of this, you can look it up later, is in Luke chapter two, when you got these two old people named Simeon and Anna. Remember this story? And Simeon and Anna were in the temple when Jesus was being presented as a little baby. And you gotta let this sink in a minute. They had been praying all of their lives, they're old. Did I mention that? 
So for like decades, it says, they've been coming to the temple, waiting and praying for the consolation of Israel, for the coming of the Messiah. So every day they're going to the temple and saying, God, is today the day you're going to bring the Messiah? I really want to see the Messiah. And God, every day for 80 plus years says, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. Some of you have been waiting a few years now for God to answer your prayer. You don't even light a candle yet to Simeon and Anna and how long they waited. There's examples like that in the Bible. So God wants us to pray and pray a lot. Sometimes he answers it all the time. Sometimes with yes, sometimes with no, sometimes with wait. And then there's a third thing is we're building our doctrine of prayer. You'll see where we're going with this in a second here. And this a lot of Christians miss. They don't get this. And that is if what you're praying about is good, right, and just... No matter what answer you get, keep on praying. Jesus taught us this. Uh, listen to this great little story Jesus says. It's one of my favorites in the New Testament. It says, then Jesus, this is found in Luke 18, verses 1 through 7. It says, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and never give up. Jesus said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about man. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I think I'm gonna see that she gets justice so that she won't come and eventually wear me out. And Jesus said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night, will he keep putting them off? <laughs> what a great story. Basically, what this adds to our doctrine of prayer is that when you feel tired and feel like giving up, man, keep on keeping on. Just keep praying. God's gonna come through. He loves you. He's not an unjust judge. If what you're asking for is good and right and just, then keep praying. Now, before we go to the fourth thing that the Bible teaches us about prayer, I, I wanna just point something out about these initial three things because this is a really good doctrine of prayer here and it's simply this, that if you as a follower of Jesus truly believe these three things, and I mean if they are an integral part of your sound doctrine of prayer, and if you and I regularly and consistently act upon them, in other words, if we faithfully live by them in our walk with the Lord, then they should, and I would argue do, lead to regular experiences with God. I, I could tell you story after story of how this is so. And some of you go, wait a second, I, I don't necessarily have this. I'm simply suggesting, because I don't think you really believe this stuff. I, I think you say you do. I'm not sure you really do. I can remember one of the first experiences of this. I was a brand new Christian back in 1981. So I told you guys I wasn't raised in a religious home at all. Hardly ever thought about God, but when he comes knocking, he knocks and he knocked and I answered. So here I am, a, a brand new Christian, Bible stupid as the day is long. I knew nothing about the Bible, but I was in love with Jesus. And my family had yet to come to faith at all. I mean, they were just doing their secular thing. And so I started to both bother them about Jesus as well as pray for them on a regular basis. 
And I've always been kind of smart or at least schemy in the way that I function. I, I thought, let's not start with the tough nuts like my dad and my brother. Let's go for easy picking fruit like my mother. My mother's small and kind of frail. She was never over like 85 pounds and five foot tall. But she, I learned, was a powerhouse when it came to spiritual things. Because I started sharing about God with her. And I come to find out that she had a lot of baggage. She grew up in a, a liberal Christian home. And her dad was a minister. And that wasn't a good model for her. And there was a lot of baggage. And she just didn't really want a lot to do with this Jesus that I found. And so I backed off a little bit. And I just started praying like crazy. Here's the only problem. Year one came and she wasn't budging. Year two came and she wasn't budging. Year three came and she wasn't budging. Seeing a pattern here? I'm starting to relate to Simeon and Anna there. And, and so I kept praying and I'd even journal back then and I'd write down these prayers. And I'll never forget the day, it was in like year six, after praying almost every day for the easy picking fruit. Did I mention that? My mom. And, 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 and one day, this is a great story. She was in a flower shop. I was spending the summer home in Chagrin Falls from seminary. And she's in a flower shop owned by a, a, a fellow Christian. This gal's name was Marie. She was an old lady, but boy, was she tough. And she was really forward. And my mom's in this flower shop picking up some flowers. And Marie comes up to my mom. And by the way, I don't suggest you do this. So the things you see right now on TV don't implement at home. I don't suggest you do this. She, she walks up to my mom and she says, Carolyn, isn't your son studying to be a minister? My mom said, yeah. She goes, well, are you a believer in Jesus? My mom said, well, I don't know. But she goes, well, you need to be. Pray right now. Bow your head. <laughs> and my mom didn't know what to do. She's a classy lady. So she bowed her head. And Marie led her in the sinner's prayer. And then Marie said, okay, now you're a Christian. Now be off with you. And so my mom <laughs> left the store. And true to form, my mom came home and I was sitting at home and my mom said to me, I, 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 think, I, I think I just accepted the Lord. <laughs> And I said, sit down, mom. What do you mean you think you just accepted the Lord? And she told me the whole story. And again, I'm, you know, my love language is cynicism. You guys know that. So I was highly cynical of this. And I said, mom, that, that could not have been real. And you know what she said to me? She said, I think something happened, Jamie. I, f I feel closer to God. And I'm much more interested in Jesus. And she goes, Marie did it all wrong. <laughs> she said, but but something's happening to me. And I saw my mom over the next year start to fall in love with Jesus. And, and, the, and the, the confounded thing of it was, God didn't even use me. All those six years when I was praying for mom, I assumed I was gonna be the one. But no, it was Marie who did it all wrong and led my mom to the Lord. And you see, my point is, is that I could tell you story after story after story. I know what a cynic would say. A cynic would say, well, Jamie, come on, it's just a coincidence. You waited long enough. You bother people long enough. Well, somebody once said that, you know, the definition of a coincidence is when God performs a miracle and prefers to remain anonymous. I think sometimes what you and I label a coincidence could be the very movement of God. I pray all the time. I I don't talk a lot about my prayer life, and it's hard to explain to you guys, but part of it is a good reason, and that's that prayer to me is very intimate with God. It's me and God. When I pray to God, I feel like I'm having an intimate conversation like I would with my wife. By the way, I don't talk to you about my intimate conversations with my wife, because those are very personal, those are very precious. I feel that way a lot about my, my walk with God. I have to force myself as a minister, as a pastor, to tell you about my prayer life because, again, they're precious things. 
I'll tell you another quick story this week that'll bring home the power of prayer. It hasn't even been answered yet. As many of you know, part of our pull together to go further uh, vision of our church is to expand in some of our multi-sites. We need to, because it's going to fill up here on Sundays again when COVID uh, go, it blows over. And uh, this week, Scott, our executive pastor, said, hey, I got a lineup on a church in, in one of the next towns over. It, it's empty. They hit hard times and they had to shut it down and it might be available to us. I was like, ooh, it's one of the towns we're looking at. And so on Wednesday, after I got done studying, Kim was out of town and I, uh, I jumped in my truck late Wednesday afternoon. Do you guys remember Wednesday afternoon? It was really hot. So I jump in my truck, I crank down the AC, I drive about 20, 25 minutes away and, and I get to this church and, and sure enough, it, it hit hard times. You know, the weeds are overgrown, it needs some work, it's like dry bones and, and, uh, and I get out of my truck and even in that heat, I spent about 20 minutes. Kathy, you'll like this. Like the Israelites walking around Jericho. I started walking around this church. I almost got stung by bees. There was a beehive there. I avoided that. And I'm just walking around this church. And I didn't name it and claim it for some of you charismatics. Like you're going, oh, he claimed it. You know, I didn't do that. I'm more humble than that, I guess. I, I just said to God over and over again, I said, God, would you want this church to live again? Do you want dry bones to live again? Because I think you would. And, and God, would you want us as a congregation to maybe be a part of that? Maybe you would. And so God, would you open doors for this as you see fit? I'd love it if you did that. But if not, if this isn't right for our congregation, would you protect us from this and close doors? And, and Lord, we'll accept from your hand what you give. It's exciting because I could picture you know, a few hundred of you there, but it's okay, God, because you're in control. And I had such peace driving away, and here's what I know. I'm looking for an answer there. Yes, no, or wait. I live my life like that. Do you know why I live? And I pray for all of you this way too. I, I write about this in my books. I, I, I see answers to prayer all the time. I experience God Sometimes in over-tangible, palpable ways. Sometimes maybe not so clear, but I still believe it's him through the eyes of faith. And as I experience him, it's on the coattails of deeply believing these things. That God wants me to pray to him a lot. That he answers my prayers. And that sometimes, and I'm still 35 years in, I'm still praying for some of my family members. I am like Simeon and Anna, waiting for the consolation of Israel. I'm praying every day for certain family members that need a revelation from God. But I know he's good for it. And you see, that's the way sound doctrine works. When it gets deeply rooted in your soul, through getting rooted in your mind, it becomes a part of your behavior and you'll start to experience God. And I know how some of you think, you think, well, Jamie, I, I appreciate the words, but I've been trying this for years, and I do pray a lot, and there are still things that God doesn't budge on. In fact, all I get is silence. What do you say about that? Well, I appreciate your honesty. I've been there. And uh, I would simply say two things very quickly. One, I would say, you do need to keep on keeping on. I mean, your only other option is to give up on God, throw in the towel, and get out of the ring. We see people do that. But as Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? <laughs> Because now you're alone and without God. <laughs> and, and so maybe it's better just to hang in there and like Simeon and Anna, keep praying. But then here's a second thing. With this, we're going to end because we're, we're going to run out of time here. But this is worth just a few minutes focusing on. And again, I'm just going to wet your whistle with this. But maybe you should consider, give me the fourth thing here on prayer. 
that faith is what matters most when it comes to you and God. Now, now have you ever thought about this? And that faith is itself an experience. I think a lot of Christians miss this. A lot of Christians, tell me if this isn't true, use God for our own enjoyment. We say, I trust you, Lord, I want this from you. It has to do with money and my marriage and my kids better turn out right and these nagging emotions like anger and anxiety, I want those away, God. And if you just do all of that, I'm gonna live a happy and healthy life and boy, why bless you for that. That's the way we approach God. And again, ask those things of him. He just might give them to you. But whether he answers all your prayers or not, here's what the average Christian today misses. That faith itself, whether it leads to any of those blessings or not, is itself an experience. When you are trusting God, when you are leaning on God, it contains within it certain things in which you experience him. You're saying like, what? (laughs) Well, how about this? As I was studying the book of Esther, again, for the book that I I just finished writing, that will come out next year sometime, um, it hit me that that in the book of Esther, you know, the Israelites are so far from God. They're so dry spiritually that they don't even mention God's name. They don't mention the law. They hardly mention anything Jewish uh, in, 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 in the book of Esther. And yet, when you read between the lines, they're trusting in God's providence in a very significant way. When Mordecai says to Esther, you know, in chapter four, for such a time as this, you know, hey, whether you do something or not, God's gonna make this right. They're trusting in God's providence. And when you look closely at the rest of the Bible, and again, this is for another sermon, I'm just gonna say this very quickly, you realize that faith alone brings comfort to one's soul, faith alone brings hope to one's soul, and faith alone brings strength to one's soul. In Jeremiah 29, 11, the Bible says, God is speaking, I know, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not harm you, to give you hope and a future. And I write in the book that though God gave that promise to Israel, I don't mind adopting it for myself. And, and when you start to latch on just through faith to that kind of promise, you begin to get comfort that even in the midst of difficulties, God is in the house and he's in control and my soul is starting to experience him. Uh, faith brings hope. Uh, my favorite passage in this vein is Romans 4.18. It's, it, it's, the, it's the theme passage of the Cleveland Browns uh, where it says, in hope against all hope, uh, they believed. It says, in hope against all hope, Abraham believed and became the father of many nations. In other words, Abraham was 100 years old, Sarah was 75. They're supposed to have a kid to carry on Israel and there's no kid. And, and so how do you hope there? Well, it says against all hope, in hope, Abraham believed. In other words, his faith alone, without seeing the kid yet, gave him hope. And then faith breeds strength. In Psalm 67, verse four, the psalmist says, may the nations be glad and sing with joy for you rule and guide the nations. So the fact that God is on the throne, ruling and guiding, brings such joy and strength to our soul that we sing. See, here's what I think a lot of Christians miss. Maybe this will be helpful for you. Even if you pray a lot and don't get what you want, because that happens, could it be that God says to keep praying because as you trust in him, that trust alone is gonna bring an experience to your soul that will make it worth it? Comfort, hope, and strength. 
The Bible affirms this, and the best spiritual writers tell us that this is true. And all of this because you have a good, sound doctrine when it comes to prayer. It works this way in every other area of life. The Bible says a lot of things about a lot of things. It tells us about who God is and what he is like. It tells us about human nature and why politicians do the things that they're doing. It tells us about society and why it's so messed up. It tells us about mores and values. It speaks to marriage, parenting, our emotions, the future. And all of this is truth that comes from God that he wants us to formulate our own doctrines on and trust him for. But they must be believed. They must be acted upon. And here's all I know is that when we do that, at least when I do that, and when I watch my fellow believers do that, they tend to fare pretty well. At the very least, they're not the ones written about in the newspapers <laughs> who have either fallen away or fallen big time. I think I can stay on the straight and narrow. I hope you can too. But make no mistake, it's because we believe the things that God has said. And by believing them, they keep us focused in a right way on him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and how your word attests to the cogency of your word. <laughs> it self-attests to what it's about. And God, I pray for, I thank you for that simple passage here today in Titus 2.1 that we need to speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. God, many of us came in here today, and hopefully aren't leaving this way, but we came here today just thinking doctrine was kind of a boring, stodgy, narrow-minded way of thinking. It's not. It actually opens up and explodes our thinking into, what, into who you are and what you're about and how we can approach this world with the strength and grace befitting of a loving follower of you. So God, I pray for any of us that might be salivating after more of this, that God, you would just get us more into your word and into your truth. May we not be afraid to follow your son, Jesus. And Lord, through finding, following him, finding the life that our souls long for, may we experience you, Father, in whatever way you have prepared for us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.